I was raised in a Jewish school, both uh, all the way from preschool through 10th grade. Um, and the highest marks, the highest praise from our rabbis, our teachers came when we had a question that stumped the teacher. The highest praise came when you said, I'm not sure I agree with that. Because, here's my experience, right? So that's, that's the kind of Jewish learning environment we want to create. So really, Rabbi, so what does that mean for me when my experience is totally different from that? We want this to be a learning experience that we're doing together. And this is part of my notes, trust me. So any word, any phrase, like Mark alluded to, any word, God, already people like get their backs up. Like, what is it? Like, it's okay. In this room, it's all okay. Whatever reactions we have, whatever responses we have, it's all okay. What I ask you to do is hold them with a lot of space around them and a lot of curiosity around, huh, that triggered me. I wonder why that is. Right? And ask a lot of questions about why it is that we have the responses that we do. Um, and we're going to start this evening with some pretty heady stuff. But it's not meant to be in your heads. It's meant to be in your hearts. It's meant to be lived. And that's the ultimate goal of what we're uh, going to do over this course of this class. Um, tonight, we're going to be a little bit more um, in our heads. Uh, and it's a little more divorced from daily practice and daily application than other uh, than the rest of it will be. But I think it's an important for us to have a framework to understand at least the vocabulary that we're going to be using, right? Whether we like, relate to it or not, it doesn't matter because we're going to suspend that, right? We relate to it, we don't, doesn't matter. Because that's just a judgment, that's just a preference. We're just going to hold it with a lot of curiosity and go, okay, let's see what the rabbis have to say about that. And we can have our feelings about that. So Mark and I are very excited about this endeavor. Um, we don't want it to just, as I said, be in our heads. So we are going to do a little practice tonight. Don't get nervous. It's okay. It's not going to be too long. It's not going to be like scary. We're going to do a little practice tonight because we really do want mindfulness practice to be part of what comes out of this experience for you. If it works in your life, great. If it doesn't, great. That's fine. I've given you a packet. I've given you a packet, yeah, the big one, the green one, from guess who, Art Green. <laughs> we in this experience together are going, are going to be starting with the language, the vocabulary of Kabbalah, because it is one of the best um, collections of terms that have been carried forward, explored, and practiced in depth to give us a real sense of Jewish, authentic, spiritual practice. So when you hear Madonna talking about Kabbalah, no. Are some of the ideas of Kabbalah accessible to everyone? Of course. Because if a spiritual tradition is talking to human truth, then it's true on some level for everyone, right? You cannot take Kabbalah and separate it from the rest of Jewish teaching, the rest of Jewish text, the rest of Jewish living, the rest of Jewish values and ethics and say, here's a system for spirituality 
that stands alone that anyone can access. It, it, it doesn't, it's just not authentic. I can take a, a bunch of sage and sage, I lived in Duluth, Minnesota, in northern Minnesota for 14 years, right? The population there, uh, many Native uh, Americans, they prefer to be called Indians, uh, actually, in Minnesota. So um, among the Indians, like, they would take sage and smudge and do all these beautiful rituals to cleanse their space. Now, I could take a bunch of sage, and I could do that same ritual, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. I think we're missing something to say, if I take sage and smoke my house with it, I have a real understanding of what Indians are doing when they do that. In a way, it's co-opting right, their tradition. So I'm not suggesting the language of Kabbalah is one that speaks to you or will be the language that works for you. But we need as a Jewish community, I think if we're going to do this business of being spiritually intentional about building a conversation, a community of practice, we need a common vocabulary. We need a common language to start with. As Jews, if you're good Jews, you'll argue with it. Because that's what we do. That's fine. Um, so we're going to start with the language of Kabbalah. And I want to demystify... <laughs> Thank you, John. I want to demystify Kabbalah for a minute. Kabbalah is not some system that has practices and associations that you do, and therefore you are a Kabbalist. There's no such thing. Kabbalah means what is received. So there is a huge body of literature that is considered Kabbalah, that which has been received. Likabel, to take, to receive. Kabbalat Shabbat, to receive, to welcome, to bring in Shabbat. There's lots that's been brought in. There's lots that is Kabbalah. We're going to look at a few specific things tonight, and then we're going to explore more of them as we go forward in our learning together. Uh, and the first is that you have, yes, already? Yes, good. So I don't know this language or exactly what it is. Obviously, I've heard of it. But what I have heard along the line is that for in order to be able to study Kabbalah, you should be very learned before you can even go into the Kabbalah. So the question is, we've been told all our lives as Jews who know anything about Kabbalah that you must be extremely learned before you even begin being, expo being exposed to Kabbalah. Why do you think that was what was taught? I have no clue. <laughs> so, first of all, you had to be male. Right. You had to be 40. You had to have children and a wife. Okay, so that's pretty clear. Why? Why all those things? And why do you have to know the mission of the Talmud, your Tanakh, all that stuff before that? Because the rabbis were very concerned that people would become Madonna. <laughs> the rabbis were very concerned that if you start grabbing at, this is going to make me happy, this is going to make me fulfilled, this is going to be a way forward that's not grounded in something, they were really worried, and I think rightly so. Believe me, I don't agree with their criteria, obviously, because I'm not 40. <laughs> so, I'm 13 years past that, but so they believed if we weren't grounded, 
right, then it's easy to reach for stuff that has no anchor. And they believed we had to have an anchor, and that's why they put all this stuff about you have to know Mishnah and Talmud and Bible so that you don't start grabbing at things that are esoteric before you have kind of a conversation about what are basic Jewish values. What are basic Jewish ethics and morals and how we're supposed to live and practices that are more easily accessible. We live in a day and age where we've done all that in some ways. We all have ethics and morals in those conversations. We all have some understanding of Torah or... We are not looking for something out there. We're looking actually, I think, for something that grounds us, right? That brings us back from the out there. And the out there is CNN, Fox News, I don't care, pick one. Like, the out there is dominating now our lives. And I feel like, in a way, now these concepts that were once esoteric and out there are actually the ones that are going to ground us. And that's what I hope we're going to do together, is explore the way um, these terms, these ideas are going to ground us. So we're going to start tonight in Kabbalah, and I'm going to explain to you why, and I'm going to explain to you where we're going to go. So I would like you to look at uh, something. Um, I would like you to look at your chart in your handout, which looks like a tree with circles on it, yeah? Back of the second page. Thank you. Yes. So there should be circles, but they're not. Because they were gray, and they clearly did not print. (laughs) This is the world of Kabbalah. It is a circle, but it's not a circle. It's a circle, but it's invisible. It's a circle, but it has no edges or boundaries. So that's why it printed like that. (laughs) We're going to look at the first three of those circles tonight briefly. Just briefly, to give you an introduction to how the Kabbalists thought what their language is, what their vocabulary is, what the concept is, and then the point of this course is that we're really going to focus on the seven below that starting next time. We're going to focus on the seven below that. So we're going to talk briefly tonight about the top three circles that are not circles (laughs) on your chart. So that's Keter, Bina, Keter, Chochmah, Bina, yeah? That's what we're going to stay tonight. Um, we're going to move this conversation, I promise. This is the only time it's going to stay a little more heady. The rest of the time it's going to be really about how these things apply to our daily lives. How do we become better people? Because we're learning about this stuff. How does this apply to me, Jim Lieberfarb, being a better person in this world? So we're going to turn now to... The idea of this whole business of a chart. This whole business is about the emanation of the divine into this world. Let's go to page 39 of Rabbi Art Green. And let's talk about, together, 
Because it happened before time. Well, before already defines time. There's no before time if there's no time. There's just time, capital T, hanging in perpetuity, going, maybe? Before there's time? What is before time is potential. What's before is potential. Well, it's like we define, (coughs) if if a tree falls and no one's there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. It's the same thing. It's like we are defining whether or not there's a before or an after because that's what we conceive of. If a tree falls and no one hears it, does it make a sound? John is saying, we as human beings go, well, we have to know, is there a before or an after? Because that's how we define things. Exactly. Exactly. But the Kabbalists... And any spiritual tradition worth its salt knows that the divine, the limitless, cannot be defined in creaturely human terms. So we start with a problem. We're going to have a whole course, a whole series on what human beings can't really talk about because it's ineffable and it's beyond human comprehension. Okay, great. Thanks, Great. <laughs> the doctor says, like, we're out. Thank you, Rabbi. That's what we're up against. And that's the glory of it, right? We don't have to define it. We get to explore it. We get to figure out, okay, what's our relationship to it? How do we experience it as these limited, human, divinely reflected beings, Michael? I have precisely the same discomfort with the idea that our universe is expanding at eight miles per second forever. Thank you. Thank you. It's expanding. To where? Forever. And then things are going to be so apart from each other that what? There's... Nothing? What's outside there? What's outside there? I read some of this physics. I'm like, whoa, the universe is expanding and faster than we thought. And things are moving far away from each other, faster than we thought. To where? Like, to to where? Like, these are the places I bump up against. Oh, yeah. We have no idea. Where does the Torah say? The multiverse, right? You start going to like, what if something actually kind of splits off? And I'm a science fiction fan, so I go there a lot. Um, But then my head starts to hurt, and I'm like, okay, I can't really think about it. Just show me a show where it's really cool that that happens. But really, that that's even physics is asking that question. There might be actually split offs from this universe, and scientifically they're saying this, that there's a multiverse, and we're experiencing one track of the multiverse, thinking it's the only theater that's playing the movie, where there's a cineplex happening, right? So we can't possibly hope to get our heads around the cineplex. We can watch one movie at a time. We can watch seven in a day, that might be a life of, the, of uh, the Dalai Lama, right? He watches seven movies a day every day. Most of us have to work for a living, so we watch one on a weekend if it's a good weekend. It's my hand, Dan. So the Kabbalists are thinking the same thing. However long ago, they want to get their head around it. How? And then you think about the beginning of the Torah and the Midrash, even, the class, 
Every single human being who's ever lived who really wants to ask deeper questions, they've asked the same questions. Right? They, they're all trying to get their head around it. Those questions have evolved as we know something more about the multiplex. Like we might have stepped into the theater that was next door and then stepped back out because we couldn't stay there very long. Like, but, but we get a glimpse that there's another movie playing, right? Or the sound, the Dolby sound from the action flick next door leaks into the romantic story that some people's partners drag them to, right? So, so we get echoes if there's something else, but we're not sitting in that theater. That's what we're here to talk about. That's how complicated and how bizarre and ineffable it really is. So with that, we're going to go to words. We just said it's ineffable. So let's go to words, because that's what Jews do. Let's go to Rabbi Green on page 39. Ain't so. God, as endless, limitless, undifferentiated reality, is the beginning and the end of truth. Wow. The oneness, oh, sorry, everything else <coughs> happens in between. The oneness of Ein Sof is absolute. It is one that does not begin a series of numbers. A one so total that no two can possibly come after it. A one that includes all that ever was, is, and will be cannot be followed by a two. What does Torah have to say about this? Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad. Echad. Not one like there's not seven. One. Adonai Echad. God is Ein Sof. God is the unity, capital U, of everything that ever was potential, everything that exploded, everything that will never happen, everything that could ever happen to anybody, ever, every giraffe, every ladybug, every blade of grass, every bacteria, bacterium, every single experience that's possible is in Adonai Echan. That's where the Kabbalists start. Ain Sof, it's all an absolute one. Even if there can't be two, say the Kabbalists, oh no, sorry. Even if there can't be two, say the Kabbalists, there can be a 10. The one opens up to reveal itself as 10. The 10s we wrote, within the cosmic structure are not added to Ein Sof, but are revealed as existing within it, the reward of a deeper gaze into reality and its nature. Take a drop of water. It looks clear, doesn't it? Until you put it under a microscope. And if you put it under a microscope, what do you see? Stuff. Stuff. <laughs> Stuff. Right? That's what the Kabbalists are saying. It's all a drop of water. When you look deeper into that drop of water, you see particularities that go to make up that drop of water. 
And that's what we're going to be exploring a little bit about. The Kabbalists give us the system of spirot. Don't worry about it. Don't get up in your head about it. I promise. It's going to be okay. They give us a system of spirot, of ten spirot. We're going to look at the top three tonight, maybe if we have time. <laughs> Each of those aspects of that drop of water for the Kabbalists have a meaning in our lives. So if you look at the body, you look at how it functions, they tell me there are proteins and stuff, like amino acids and stuff, like how they actually hook together actually affects the health of the body, right? Think of this spherote as amino acids or proteins. I don't I forget which go together to make you function. Amino acids make up proteins. Amino acids make up proteins. And don't proteins do stuff together to make? Uh, they certainly do. They certainly do. Okay. Okay. This is going to be so good that you're sitting in the front row. You have to sit in the front row every time, doctor. Um, the Kabbalists give us the spherote. Let's say they're amino acids. Those amino acids react together to create proteins. Right? They don't see the spherote as separate. They're in relationship to each other. And how they come together or don't they either form proteins or don't that help us function in a healthful way or not. So this is not esoteric, out there stuff. This is actually how we function and work as human beings, just not on the physical level. But I tell you, most of that stuff is mysticism to me. Right? Because I, I don't understand that. So I don't understand the chemistry. Do you? We don't understand chemistry, but we accept it. Right? We accept that if this works and that works and this level and this level and your doctor tells you, you take what they tell you to fix that and it's okay. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. But, but I don't understand it. It's okay. We don't have to understand everything about it. But we can also trust that it's true because you've had your own experiences of anything we're going to talk about. None of this is outside of you. None of this is outside of your life or your relationships, or walking the dog, or sitting in traffic. None of this is outside. It is inside every one of us, inside of every human life, inside of every human being, and every experience. All right, drop down to the bottom of 39. The contemporary Jewish mystic has to be somewhat more modest in the claims for the truth of the spherotic model. To say that I know how God emerges from the depths of mystery and sets out to create the world is far more than I would dare to assert in an objective way. The important thing for today's seeker is to begin from experience and not from metaphysics. Drop down to the middle of that paragraph. The spherot are stages of spiritual ascent, going up the ladder of abstraction until one is fully lost or absorbed in the mystery of oneness. They are also rungs of descent, the return to this lower world of daily reality. Kabbalah claims that this path, one we can come to know through contemplative practice, and whose truth is validated by inner experience, is the cosmic path, and that our experience is only a recapitulation of God's own way into the world. This is not something outside of us. This is not something separate from us. This is how God manifests God's self in the world. And because each of us is an olam me'at, a mikdash me'at, a, a mini version, a mini reflection of the divine, it can't be other. 
If the divine manifests this way in the world, then it must be that it is with us the same. This firot may also be seen on an outer, inner axis rather than a vertical one, a model that will work better for some in our day. We make the journey inward toward oneness to a deeper level of being and return from it through the same 10 stages to the external or outer reality of daily living. So too, does God emerge out of the inner hidden depths to manifest in the unique surface form of every and each creature. Yeah? No? What do you think? Well, I have a question. I mean, why can't Madonna be accessible to this? She's a creature, and we're all creatures. She totally can. But she said, not Madonna. She totally can, can glean what she does right. from this universal teaching. 100%. To say her name is Esther in Kabbalah, and she's a Kabbalist, and she, she's completely disconnected from the underpinning values, ethics, teachings, history, moral, that, that undergirds every single one of the larger concepts that Kabbalah teaches. I'm not saying she can't take value from that. Right. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there is a point at which one is taking something out of the tradition that was never meant to be taken out of the tradition. If you want to look at it and glean something from it, terrific. But when Christians sit down to do a Passover Seder, okay, are they getting something from celebrating the lamb being sacrificed and the blood of the... Like, yes, I'm sure they are. Can it be divorced from the Jewish people's narrative of the exodus from Egypt, being in slavery, being oppressed, being liberated from that slavery? What does it mean? What does that mean for our people? I, I don't... I don't think it has the same resonance to have a Passover Seder where it's completely disconnected right, from the Jewish story and what that has meant for us as a people to live that story out. I think it's kind of the same with Kabbalah. Yeah, can you do it and access certain universal truths from it? Sure. Wait, what? what how, much, how much weight and grounding does that have? I don't, I don't know. And it, to, it really doesn't matter I guess what I'm saying is it's, this is not like out there esoteric stuff that is just up for grabs. It comes with responsibilities. It comes with underpinnings. It comes with a history of sacrifice of people's lives for what this means and what it means to live this. And it just, it's got a, a peoplehood to it that I think sometimes kind of gets ignored. And maybe that's just my sensitivity to rabbi. And, and, and it's a professional Jew, right, you know, that sometimes I feel like it's, some of this is co-opted, but, and, so I, should, I shouldn't judge. Whoever gets anything from this, I'm happy for them. Yes? So two things. I mean, when you read this to me, what it sounds like is meditation, like going into that space that's so divorced from the physical, that's what it sounds like to me, so I'm not sure if that's... So meditation is definitely one of the ways... She said, she's saying it sounds like this is meditation. Meditation is one of the practices that brings us to a place of awareness. It brings us to what this class, right, one of the words we use about this is mindfulness. That's exactly what this tradition brings us, invites us into, is mindfulness. 
meditation, prayer, singing. You know, we opened a song for a reason. Music, singing, expressing ourselves that way brings us to a different place, and we're going to do a little bit of mindfulness practice tonight. That, that's what this is about, exactly. Accessing what we already know, but we live so far up in our heads that we're here, and so it's about creating some space to know in other ways the truth of what we're reading. Yeah? So if Madonna, sorry, can I just follow? If Madonna sits, if Madonna has a, a Passover Seder and invites the, everybody at the table is not Jewish, then what your analogy is makes sense to me. But what if it's a Jew, it's a Jewish family and they invite Madonna to be there and she understands, I'm just saying, any, you know, Madonna, meaning anybody that wasn't raised with the Jewish tradition per se, could sit at a Jewish table and still get out of that the whole story. I don't want to spend a lot of time on Madonna and non-Jews accessing our tradition. What I will say is I hope that anyone who comes to this space, Jewish, non-Jewish, or otherwise, I hope anyone that comes to this space can take what's happening tonight and take it in and have it be growthful and have it be experiential and have it be something that's like meaningful and informative, 100%. All I'm saying is divorcing it, right, completely from Jewish language and practice and texts and history and whatever is, is, a, is a kind of, I don't want to say weakening, but a kind of clipping the, the things that, that anchor it. That's all I'm saying. Meaning, they should learn it here. <laughs> like, if Madonna wants to study Kabbalah, she should do it here. Gabby. I'm having a lot of trouble understanding what God means in this context. Really? Because I understand that God is everything. So we are trying to understand how everything manifests everything in the world. And I, you know, I'm primed to hear God and think big bearded man up in the sky, which I don't, like, doesn't... Doesn't resonate for you? Really? Really. (laughs) So my question is, what do they mean by God? And I don't know if we can. Well, if I can't answer that, I don't know where you're supposed to go. She says, well, what do we mean by God? And can you answer that? So no, I can't answer that. Because there's no answer in words, is what the Kabbalists tell us. There's no answer in words that's going to satisfy. Because there's no words that can actually explain what's unexplainable. Isn't that a great rabbinic answer? Um, That's what I love about our tradition. Our tradition says you don't define God. Maimonides said anything you can actually say the positive about God is heresy. You can only say what God is not. God is not limited. God is not... What can we actually say about the ineffable? Not much. That's why the name of God in Hebrew, and y'all who study Torah with me know... What's the name of God? Y-H-V-H is the closest we can get in English. You can't say it. Not just you're not allowed to say it. You actually, you hate, love, hate, can't say it. I think our tradition is brilliant in saying, here's the name of God, people. 
Sing it together. <laughs> so the only way we can understand what this is is by doing it because we can't just talk about it. Gabby, I could not have given a better answer. Thank you. The only way we can understand it is to do it, is what she said. Not to talk about it. Yeah, that's Judaism. That's Judaism. The only way you can know anything about this is to do it. How do you do it? That's what you're going to find out. Dana? The thing that helps me is that it is Jewish and it is always connecting with history and the Torah. Because, you know, the Kabbalists that were in the Warsaw Ghetto were connecting to that inner, in a different way than I am if I'm, you know, at a hospital sitting next to a relative that's cancer. You know, the, the times when you really go inside her, you'll show us another type of anger. So for me, the question about the Jewishness and Kabbalah is that it still connects to all of They're sitting next to me at my, at my Seder table. That's not too religious, but I know they're there. And I don't think they're sitting next to Madonna. So Dana, you're lifting up the value that this all connects back to the generations of Jewish thought, Jewish texts, <laughs> Jewish exploration, and Jewish people, Jewish human yes, beings. But it can mean something today in a different way. That it changes all the time. It means something different in every generation, but the door by door is all about, but I'm connected to the generations before me, even as I see it differently today. Lori? Um, I like the line here, like what Gabby said, is um, you come to know it by going through this path, and the experience is what validates it. You come to know it through going through this path, and your experience is what validates your understanding. Right. Hearing that a group of great spiritual people from all different faith traditions got together and they all tried to describe their experience of, of God and they described it in amazingly similar terms. So they had taken these different paths, but what they reached was this experience that was quite similar. So the experience was similar, even if the language or let's even go to dogma, or whatever, was different. That when we really boil down people's experience of connection to divinity, it's remarkably similar. Jim? Uh, God simply is, is, it's not about intellectualizing because it's just, you can't, it's simply put, it's, it's to be experienced. How I experience God may be different from this woman, or from you, or from you, and yet we are in God right now, right here, right now, right here, right now. That's what it's about, right here, right now. Right here, right now. So why are we talking? If we're just doing God right here, right now. Why are we talking? Right? Because there's a part of us, I think, that's hungry for language to explore the many flavors of experiencing God and the ways that we as human beings can lean into what the Hasidim will call midot that come out of the sefirot. Thank you for bringing me to the next point in, in the evening. The, the Hasidim will take these sefirot and they will translate them into 
qualities, spiritual qualities that we can work on to be people who have more access to, more experiences of the divine. And the divine, if you take light, it looks like light. It looks like white light. Because it is, I guess, so it's white light. But if you take, a, take it through a prism, or you see a rainbow, right? The light is broken down into, bless you, the many different parts, right? That actually make up light. That's what we're talking about when we talk about spherot. That's what we're talking about when we talk about midot, qualities. We're talking about breaking the ineffable, the unifying nothingness, the aims of the endlessness, and breaking it down into what we can actually cultivate. We can only cultivate, right, through the broken down colors. Purple, blue, red, green, right? Chesed, gevura, and we're going to talk about all of those, and our goal together is to create both practices and conversation and on-ramps to the different colors of the divine experience. Yes? Yes, uh, we have been talking about God for most of the time, and in the Kabbalah, God is mentioned many, many times, and all the discussions about God, but what can a person who's atheist can get out of it? Bless you. <laughs> what can a person who's atheist get out of these conversations about God? The best I can or Kabbalah. The best I can say is if you replace the word God with consciousness, capital C, does it help? Because I don't, I don't need the word God, frankly. I don't need that. Consciousness, energy, capital E, nothing, capital N, that infuses everything, capital E. I, I, right, right? We get stuck on the word God because we have all these associations with what that means. What if we blew those up? Okay, don't, don't say God, say dog. Do it backwards. A lot of us can access dog. <laughs> seriously. Like, seriously, right? We can access warmth, love, trust, goodness, loyalty, right? We, we get that. So just spell it backwards. And what, what does that evoke in us? That, that's what we're talking about. Not whatever. Because you say atheist. What, what is atheist really? What, what is atheist? Tell me what atheist is. There's a man up in the sky telling us what. Say it again, Gabby. There's not a big man up in the sky telling us. There's a word missing from your sentence. There's not a man in the sky, blah, blah, blah. There's a word missing. I don't believe there's a man in the sky. Atheism is a belief. That's a belief. How's that different from my belief? Atheism is a belief. That there's nothing bigger than us. There's nothing outside that my human mind can't possibly comprehend. That's a belief. I don't believe that. I've experienced something else. I don't need to call it God. Like, I can call it whatever. But you, you see what I'm saying? We get hung up on, I don't believe that. Believe what? <laughs> We've experienced things that the Kabbalists are trying to figure out how to bring into our daily lives so that we can be better people. So that we can have better relationships. 
so that we can create a society and a world that is reflective of something that we know is redemptive. And we Jews use that word, redemption. And for us, it's not redemption from sin, right? That's a Christian concept. For us, redemption is liberation, right? All right. So do we need to take a break? Are we okay? We good? Everybody okay? All right. Um, I need... Um, wow. Okay, time flies. That's good. Kayla, are you saying you have a question? Please. I'm sorry? Throughout the course, are we going to connect this to Musar? Throughout the course, are we going to connect this to Musar? That's where we're going. Absolutely, 100%. That's where we're going. I love it. Are we going to connect this to Musar? Love that. Musar. Because what the heck is Musar is what everybody else is saying. So, yes, we're going to connect this to Musar. All right. So let's turn to... I'm sorry? What's happening? The dogs and I are connecting. Yeah. How are they connecting? All right. The Kabbalists take this spherotic system that you have, bless you. They're taking this spherotic system and they are going to bring it eventually through Hasidism into Musar, into how do we cultivate these aspects of divinity in our own lives? Because if it's a part of divinity, forget divinity, if it's a part of reality, the part of reality that we don't see, can't touch, but know and experience all the time, if we want to name those aspects of reality that we can't touch or measure but experience in our lives, the, the, the Kabbalists give us the beginning of that language in the spherotic system. Hasidism takes those aspects and says, here's how we cultivate that in our daily lives. Here's how we bring that forward. Here's how we pull that through us so that we make a better, like I said, relationship, self, community, society. Oh my God, could we venture to say world? So yes, that, they call that musar, the practice of cultivating midot, spiritual characteristics that will make us people who are living lives of greater depth and meaning, which is why I think you're here. So Amy, but then, so yes. So like an example, so what... What I'm hearing you say is love. Love can't be touched. Love can't be, but love can be felt. And so through something like kindness, you're going to feel the love from somebody else. Mm -hmm. Is that so? The practice would be kindness, but the feeling that that, that what you can't touch and only feel the energy of is love. I'm not going to use that specific language because I'm going to use the language of the Hasid, the Hasidim, and Hasidic literature and Kabbalistic. They, yes, chesed is love, obviously. It's chesed. Ah, love. loving kindness. Oh. Right, so does that engender a feeling of love? Yes, but gevura might be boundaries, might be strength, might be saying no to somebody you love because they're stepping over a boundary. So not everything is experienced as love. No, no, I'm, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you're saying... Whatever it is that we want to experience, if it's happiness, if it's love, if it's 
I'm saying the things that can't be touched from the, I'm just trying to put it into practical sense to make sense of what you just said. I'm not saying it's all love. I'm saying whatever it is that can't be felt, touched, blah, 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 blah. So it's through the actions that we do. So it's like love, right? That love can be a feeling, love can be something we experience, right, from somebody else. And there are actions associated, yes, with someone feeling that we love them. I'm not, I'm not sure what your question is, okay. but don't worry. But just, just, just okay. hold it, okay. right? It's okay. Yes, it's the stuff we can't touch. Kushner, right, said to his daughter when talking about God, something about we just had this conversation in our vod in our uh, in our committee that led to this course. We had this conversation about um, Kushner, Rabbi Kushner, talking to his daughter and talking about the things that are ineffable, the things we can't see, the things we can't touch. And he's saying, you know, they're talking about God, ultimately. And she's like, well, how do I know there's a God? And he says, well, can you touch my nose? And she touches his nose. Touch my ear. She touches his ear. Touch my hand. She touches his hand. And he says, touch my love. Well, of course, his daughter can't touch his love. So how do you know my love for you exists? If you can't touch it, and you can't feel it, and you can't measure it, and you can't prove it, how, how do you know I love you? Because I experience it. I experience it, and you can't touch that, or measure that, or believe that. You experience it. You don't believe someone loves you. Well, actually, some people do, and then they're not loved, and that's a whole nother messed up, horrible set, right, of, of things that happen to people. But, but usually, we experience love. We don't believe someone loves us. We experience their love. That's what the Kabbalists are talking about. That's what Hasidim is t- Hasidic texts are talking about, and the stuff we're going to be learning about are the things we actually experience. They're not esoteric, they're not so out there. They're things we experience every day. You can make the same argument with quantum physics or whatever. We, we think we know that there are all these crazy things that make, I shouldn't be falling through the floor, but I don't. Um, we don't, there's so much we know is there, but we don't know is there. Right, so quantum physics, like wave particle. Okay, they tell me that's a real thing. That it depends how you measure it, whether it shows up as a wave or as a particle. Okay. I see it as wind, or like, like right? Like, like, they tell me that exists, it probably does, I believe them, that's a choice, I believe them, the scientists, because it's a world I don't understand and don't know, but I walk through all the time without seeing, but if I learned what they learned, if I paid attention through the microscopes that they pay attention through, guess what? I would discover something I don't see every day when I walk around the world. That's what this stuff is. That's what this is. Let me just, Amy. I know, my foot's cramping, it's okay. Uh, but you have, no, it's okay. Just pushing it, give it to me. Another way to frame this, that everything you're describing is within us at the time we're born. I can't hear you. Every, everything you're describing, we're born with at the time of our birth. Everything I'm describing, we're born with at the time of our birth. And this journey is how to connect to, to the feeling of love, to, the, to, the, to everything you're describing. This journey is about connecting right. back to all of that. Right, and then being able to express it in your life. Absolutely. 
how to connect back to it and then express it in our life. How to see it through the microscope. How to stop and start seeing and experiencing differently. That's how we live lives of greater depth and meaning. And that's the purpose of the tradition. Not to convince you of something, not to have you believe something, but to say, okay, we're gonna explore the contours of actual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Can we start to taste and tease out, and uh, if you do those, what do you call them, kaleidoscopes? It's the same junk at the end of the thing. It's the same light shining into the same junk at the end of the thing. But what happens when you turn it? Right, they cascade into completely new and sometimes gorgeous designs. It's about turning the kaleidoscope, right? It's about seeing things differently. It's about slowing down. It's about being purposeful. It's about being mindful. And so actually, we've been up in our heads a lot. So we're gonna take a moment now to shift gears. So I invite you to put your papers down on the floor. And I'm going to invite you, you don't have to do anything. This is not about have to. I invite you to explore what it means to uncross limbs that are crossed. Because we tend to cross because it's habit. And we tend to cross because it's comfortable. And it's a little protective. So I'm going to invite us to uncross if you want to. Put our feet on the floor. Either sit against the back of the chair so your spine is supported or move to the front of the chair where you can sit where your spine actually goes where it's naturally supposed to go, but we don't do that in the West, so that's actually challenging for us. And I'm going to ask you to just bring your attention to your breath. The breath enters and leaves the body all on its own. We don't do anything. This is one of the gorgeous things the rabbis tell us about being human and being alive is that the universe breathes us. The word for soul in Hebrew is nishama. The word for breath in Hebrew is nishima. They are related. The rabbis say the universe breathes us. God breathes the soul into us every single moment we are alive. And the soul returns. The moment we're not alive, the soul returns to source, capital S. So we take a moment to be aware that right now, the universe, consciousness, the divine, is breathing us into existence. So we take a moment to just notice that we don't effort at all to breathe unless we're sick or have asthma or have other really debilitating conditions which make people struggle. So we take a moment to be grateful that the breath comes in and out right now as it's supposed to. 
So we take a moment to just ground through the feet. We are here in this place that is safe, in a community of love and support and commitment to exploring depth. And we relax through the feet and the ankles. We relax the shins and the calves, the entire lower leg. We notice the knees, painful for what they do all day. We relax the thigh muscles, the big muscles that collect all the reactions of the day. All the chemical cascades of stress goes into the thighs so that we could run or stand and fight. So we invite them to relax, to release the cortisol. Hamstrings, the IT bands. We bring our awareness to where the legs meet the torso and allow all of those connections to soften. Feeling our sit bones in the chair, we're aware of our weight in the world. In Hebrew, kaved, heavy, is the root of kavod, the divine presence. Respect, honor. We honor our own presence in this world the image that each of us is of the divine that will never happen this way ever again. We relax the lower back and the belly, noticing any holding or tightness and we're invited to breathe into those places of holding. We relax the mid-back and the ribcage. Bathing the organs in oxygenated blood telling all of our automatic systems that it's okay to heal now, repair now, because there's no need for them to do anything else. We relax the upper back as we open the chest. dropping into the heart space, allowing the heart to soften.
noticing any emotions that come up, allowing them to be there. Dropping the shoulders away from the ears. Allowing the upper arms to be heavy and relaxed. Relaxing through the elbows and forearms. Through the wrists and hands. Relax the neck and throat. Releasing the jaw. Relaxing the mask of the face. Eyes soft in the head. Relaxing the brow. Relaxing the ears, which means releasing our attachment to sound. Allowing sound to prompt us to go deeper. We bring our awareness to the crown of the head. Setting an intention of expansion, openness. Take a moment to sit relaxed and alert. Anytime the mind wanders and starts planning or regretting or rerunning conversations or making lists, we are invited to gently return our attention to the breath in and out of the body. ready at the count of one you can open your eyes Sharon. <coughs> Anyone? <coughs> I loved it. What was that like? It was presence. You don't have to like it. Yeah, I felt really good. You, you felt really good? Yes. It was presence. Why? It just calmed me down and got me out of my mind and helped me focus on my breathing and my body and and what does that do? <laughs> I just felt more present.
you felt more present. Mm-hmm. I just like hearing your voice. <laughs> Calms our mind, gets us out of, right? Thinking, 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 brings us into the body, right? Often, our bodies are transportation for our brains, right? The way we live. Really, our bodies are just there to get our brains around. So we can think and talk and analyze and do and do more and plan more and critique more and demand more and want more. (laughs) When we come into the body, what we find is like, oh, right, there's another level of my existence that I am divorced from a lot of the time. That's all I am. Linda? I just think anything where I can sit quietly and be present here is good because I, I don't sit still very often. Anytime you can be still and be present is a good thing because we're not still very often. Mm-hmm. Ain't that the truth? Margo? I, it takes a lot for me to relax. And I felt very relaxed, <coughs> so much so that I think my mouth opened a little bit. And then, I, then the thought went through my head. Oh my God, that was such a beautiful example. That's so gorgeous. Margo said I was so relaxed. And I was so relaxed that my mouth opened a little bit. And then I thought, oh my God, what do I look like to other people with my mouth open? This is how we live so much of our lives. Oh my gosh, I'm feeling so fill in the blank. And where do we go immediately? Uh, What's that going to look like to other people? How are other people going to experience that? How are they going to judge me in what I am right now? Yes. I think it was a really grounding experience because it allowed me to really breathe throughout all of my body, like feel it in my feet, up to my legs. It's just like a nice process to just kind of make sense of always like being up here and wanting to like but it was like time to silence the distractions and really be present and grounded to breathe through your whole body is what I heard you say and relax every part oh right I have legs mm-hmm. <laughs> right when I, when I actually breathe into my legs they're, they're able to actually relax and to stop all the chatter right anybody have like a, a difficult reaction to that Experience, Gabby? I just, I'm so verbal at in my world. I perceive verbally and I process verbally. I have, I don't think I've ever been able to successfully, like, unverbalize my experience. <coughs> you don't think you've, you don't think you've ever been able to sex, successfully unverbalize your I, experience? I process everything with words. So even while we're sitting in a meditation practice, your brain is putting I'm words to that? Words and I'm saying those words to myself, and I'm like, all right, relax your legs. Oh, wait, I, don't, I can't really feel those muscles. What's going on? Like, it's all still in my head. So this is, for some of us, a really familiar experience. When I started the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, you know, two-year program for rabbis that Mark is now doing the lay component of, you know, we started sitting in meditation. I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. 
Like, I, I, I can't do this. I'm a terrible meditator. Because she says, relax your feet. I'm like, feet, I love feet. Why do I love feet? Some people hate feet. Some people have really ugly feet. Why do I, like, like, relax your ankles. I sprained my ankle once. God, that was horrible. Why do I sprain my ankle all the time? Well, because they're skinny and they, like, weak. So every word was a trigger for me, right, to go into a whole other story. What I learned, because I thought, okay, well, I'm a terrible meditator, obviously, right? Because she says anything, and I start thinking, 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 and I'm not supposed to think. <coughs> what I so valued about talking to my meditation teacher, Rabbi Shia Peltz Weinberg, who is brilliant at helping people like me through the obstacles that I had to that, <coughs> is that she said, so can you hold those moments as moments that give you the opportunity to bring the mind back to the breath. What if you just saw them as, oh, that's an opportunity for me to bring the mind back to the breath, to the instruction. <coughs> I was like, wait, you mean I don't have to judge it? Like, I, right, I don't, I don't have to evaluate my meditation. I can just see it as an invitation to return my attention to the breath. What? Right? Mind-blowing. And it wasn't right away. Because, you know, we're alike that way. It wasn't right away. She told me mindfulness practice, meditation practice, is actually a teshuva practice. It's not about calming the mind. It's not about not thinking. It's not about quieting the mind. It's about teshuva. Every time my mind wanders, I sprain my ankle once. It's an opportunity to return the attention to the breath. And then it's those opportunities and those reachings back from thinking that actually is the practice, not the quiet mind. That changed my entire perspective on the whole business. Because if it's a teshuva practice, I got a lot right to do teshuva for, right? Like, that gives me a lot to work with rather than I was missing the point or not achieving the goal, which some of us kind of get a little caught in sometimes, just saying, not just saying. I saw another hand. Anne? For me, it's mostly learning not to judge yourself. It's what? Not to judge yourself. And to say, oh, that's a thought. Okay. And not judging it, just acknowledging it right. and so that's the practice, and this is why it's not esoteric or out there. Because the practice is, I'm thinking, I'm planning, I'm telling a story. The practice is, <coughs> I'm so sorry, I'm not going to judge that. I'm going to hold that with a lot of patience and a lot of compassion and a lot of space, and it cultivates our ability to do that, believe it or not, even with the people we live with. It cultivates our capacity to hold things that are happening with a little more space, with a little more patience, with a little more compassion, no matter what it is, including they run out of receipt tape at my register every single time. That is the moment of spiritual practice. That's the moment to the rabbis that matters. Not the big lofty spiritual experiences. It's the moment we encounter someone 
who's barking at us, and you're like, whoa, whoa, right? That's the moment that this practice of mindfulness, conversations about how to bring me dote spiritual characteristics forward in our lives, these practices help us actually develop the muscles that help us refrain. Like, what do muscles do? If you do a push-up, what is a push-up actually doing? It's helping you refrain from hitting the floor. Right? It's resistance. It's resistance training. Resistance to our reactivity. It increases our muscles, our spiritual, emotional, psychological ability to not react for just 10 more seconds. Donna? The same thing I'm thinking about, like when I have a lot of judgment coming up or a lot of critique or, or worry, <clears throat> what I've learned is if I, if I allow it to be there, i.e. not judge it, it's like, it's like not picking up a weight. So if I don't pick up the weight, I'm not going to build the muscle, right? If I keep judging it and I judge the judgment and I judge the thoughts, I'm, I'm making it stronger. So the practice is not to stop it from happening, but changing my relationship to it. Right. So not to stop the judging, not to stop the reacting, not to stop whatever our story is, but to say, I choose a different relationship to that. Right. I choose a different relationship to that narrative. I'm not going to judge me for having it. Yeah. I'm not going to judge them for triggering it. I'm going to take one second to hold it right a little differently. Right. Jim? Uh, I've been doing meditation for, it's a, it's a regular practice. I'm not saying I do it every day, but it's consistent. And so what it used to be is that either I totally passed out or I had an active mind. But through the process of doing it and just breathing and quiet, it quiets the mind, everything that you said, but it allows me also, it's like, one, I can't control my thoughts. I can guide, meditation is guided that, but I become what I call the neutral observer. You know, it's, when, I, when I'm in the obsession or obsessive thinking, you know, it's like I'm running this tape that keeps going, but meditation has allowed me to become conscious. Oh, that's what I'm doing. That is mindfulness. That's what we mean by mindfulness. It allows me, I heard you say, to be conscious. It's not that it stops. It's that it allows me to be conscious of it. It allows me to be mindful that the elephant is taking, wants to go this way. <laughs> right? And mindfulness practice is about developing the strength in our legs to guide the elephant where we want it to go. It, right? So it's about saying it, it's going to charge wherever it wants to go if we just say, okay, we're not going to do anything about it. Mindfulness practice is about saying, I want to learn how to help steer the elephant. I can start down that road if this always happens to me. Why do I always get stuck at the line where the receipt, blah, 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 blah. I can, Amy, you can go down that road if you'd like. How productive is that right now? <clears throat> how likely are you to come out of the grocery store feeling better? Right? Mindfulness practice allows us to actually make that choice. I don't have to go down that road. I can actually say, okay, this is five minutes that I can either look at the People magazine headlines or whatever, and just take a moment to go, yay, here I am, breathing, standing up, right, whatever. Susan, you had something you wanted to say? 
Yes, for me the experience was um, very healing and um, connected to love. Healing and connected to love, this practice of right. getting quiet and dropping in. And, uh, and you can say whether or not this is what you think, but I, I think dropping into love is because we drop out of the head a little bit into the heart. And when I'm directed to drop into the heart space, part of me goes, oh, wait, really? Like, but, <laughs> but if I drop into the heart space, right, I tend to drop into a feeling state and often an awareness of love. Also fear, also sadness. Um, I cried a lot during my meditation retreats. I cried a lot. And if I were to go on a three-day silent retreat right now, I know that I would cry for 48 hours of that three-day retreat. Why? Why? Why would I cry, do you think? The sadness would all come up. Hmm? Because you hold so much sadness. Sadness, from all sadness comes up. I hold so much sadness. Am I alone in this room? Well, you repress it. Nope. Maybe you connect with your, your God, your source. I get and maybe I connect with my God and my source, and that is a really moving experience. When we get tender, right, we, we often cry. Like my daughter, I walked into her room last night. Don't tell her I said this. I walked into her room last night, and she was crying. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. Like, I try not to make a big deal. Like, she's 15. She's a 15-year-old young person. She's crying. Okay, it's not, like, whatever. But I'm like, that's not how she usually is. So I'm like... What's happening? Is something happening? And she said, I was just reading this book of poetry. And then I wrote this poem. And she said, it was so, it was so sad. This poem was so sad. And I didn't want to go into it then, because like, obviously I just wanted to be with her and be with her experience and not ask a lot of questions or judge it or make it about me. But I wondered, how much is it that the poetry was sad and how much was it that the poetry touched her? Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not so sure it was, I mean, I'll ask her at some point, but I'm not so sure it was sad poetry, right? I think when we get in touch with the softer parts of ourselves, where we really allow ourselves to be vulnerable, and be vulnerable and be touched, we cry, right? We cry weddings. We, we, we cry baby namings. Certainly it's circumcision, but like we, we cry and we are touched and we, right, we drop into the heart space and we feel and we don't allow ourselves to go there very often in our daily lives, right? Till we're on retreat. Renee? Yeah, I, I think one of the interesting things about meditation that I've experienced is that you start off with just the normal everyday stuff in the first couple of like my to-do list is what I need to do before I go to bed tonight when I get up in the morning. And then you start getting into deeper stuff. So I can see how if you're meditating for that many hours, which I've never done, <laughs> you might get to a deeper level. So it'll that, that when we start in meditation, everything's going, and then we start to settle down, and we drop down. So you can imagine, like Renee's saying, like, over two days of that, you can imagine how much deeper you go. That, those are the people who are writing the texts we're about to study. I want you to remember that. The people who wrote these texts that we're going to study went to that place all the time. And they went to ecstatic practice, singing, becoming so joyful, dancing together that they cried. Right? Like they, they went to those places that we don't go because we're just on this super highway. Right? Um, and 
this practice is about, and these texts and these explorations, these conversations are about how do we drop down into the next level, right, of awareness, of mindfulness, of of capacity to hold what's happening and name it in ways that are really exciting to share with each other, right? That, that's, that's where we're gonna go. Speak to me, my lovely, wonderful friend. Uh, I was just gonna say that um, I think that sometimes people suppress feelings for so long that when you get deep into meditation, you finally start to let them go and that so you, you're saying that, that people suppress emotion so much that when we get quiet and we start to actually go there, that we start to access stuff that's, that's what? It's hard. Right? It's hard. And painful. And sometimes scary. Right? Because um, we're not taught a lot how to hold pain. Right? How to hold fear. How, how to hold whatever's coming up. And it, so it's scary for us. Right? And so we resist going there a lot. Michael? Um, I may watch Sports Center and those shows more than most people in this room. <laughs> they frequently have make a wish for children suffering from cancer. Or One of the most amazing stories was a, a young fellow who lost an eye to cancer, went to USC, lost his second eye to cancer, was a member of a football team, and he was, a, he was a long snapper, and the SC coach got the other team to allow him to make a snap on a point after and not rush him, because he was blind on the football field. Only blind person ever to play in a collegiate football game, one play. I'm in tears. My mother didn't teach me this, but I, I learned it, I caught it from her, and it's not fear, it's a release. Laurie comes in and sees me in tears and says, all right, what did you just see? Did your team I'm, lose? I'm happy to go there. It's just a release and a <coughs> It's life, and I cry. It is so good to hear, particularly in our culture, a white, successful man say, I can cry. Not only I can cry, but it's a release, right? It's a good thing, and I feel completely comfortable doing that, because that is... That's not something I feel comfortable with all the time, crying. And I'm like in the business of crying, right? And so it's a huge thing for us to access our own capability of holding our own experience, however scary and hard and big it is. It is a huge thing to be together, to build our capacity to hold our own experience in its raw, amazing awesome, scary wonderfulness. How much um, of our difficulty in doing this is our Western background? How much of our difficulty in doing this is our Western background? <laughs> I'll tell you another joke. If you Most of it, right? Yeah, tell me another joke, right? I just want to say that somebody brought up the word difficulty, which I, I don't, everybody who's talking so far has been successful and relaxing and whatever, so I've been a practice for like two years now. You've meditation. been practicing meditation for, for two, two years? years, but just once a week at my office. Once a week at your office. office? And for the longest time, I kept asking the coach, like, how do I know when I'm meditating? And so she, she kept asking kept the coach, how do I know when I'm actually how meditating? How do I know when I'm meditating? And she just kept telling me all the time, it's not 
a moment. <laughs> like you're meditating. Like you're and coach us, it's not a moment that you've achieved, right? Because what are we really asking? When have I achieved meditation? That's what I want. When do I get the star? When do I get the check in the big box? When do I get the A on my paper? And she when have I successfully meditated? Exactly. How will I know? Yeah, apparently from the first day you walked in the room, you're doing it. You're being mindful, and it took me a long time. That's the magic of this practice, is that you finally come, after practicing, to realize that there isn't a moment that you like check off, oh, I successfully meditated, because that's all judging mind. Judging, judging, judging. I'm a bad meditator. Today I was a good meditator. I lasted this long without a thought today. That's all judging. The whole practice is about just noticing with a lot of space and a lot of compassion and a lot of self-love and a lot of kindness. We at our staff meetings have our, uh, at our staff meetings we were asked recently our new thing to share with each other is to bring a picture from when we were kids. And share something like paradigmatic about who we are from this picture. And so I brought this picture of me as a, um, like, I don't know, five or six year old, one of those, you know, professional shots where I'm like this. You know, I'm looking up and like the light is shining angelically down on my, I must say, very cute five year old face. (laughs) And I hold that picture in my mind and I told this to my staff. I said, because what I realized when I look at that picture is, I love her. Who wouldn't love her? Who wouldn't love a picture of any one of you at five years old? But we get so caught, right, in judging that five-year-old and who they become that it's crazy town. So one of the things I invite you uh, to do whenever we kind of get that judgy self thing going on is to just... Take a snapshot in your head and bring it forward of you at three, at five, at seven, at six and a half, right? And just hold that because that's who we still are. People deserving of love and compassion and patience and kindness and gentleness and respect and encouragement. All of this is to bring us into alignment with that practice, with that practice for ourselves. Because when we can do that, guess what? We are able to do it with the people around us to a much greater extent. And that's the point. That's how we live lives of greater depth and meaning, is to cultivate the capacity within ourselves for self-love and patience and support (laughs) and encouragement to see the divine in ourselves so that we can do that with everybody around us. I hope that our time together will bring you closer to a sense of that. I get it from you, being with you. I get it in practicing with you. We're going to practice together. We're going to talk together. We're going to sing together. We're going to lean in hard to this business. And hopefully, we're going to create a core of folks here at KI who this is what we're about this conversation, and it will change however you want it to. It'll become whatever you want it to be.
That's your invitation. This is your space, your synagogue, your community, your KI, and we are here to help facilitate whatever uh, is going to make that a deeply meaningful Jewish spiritual place for you.